0: This is Mark Gerson and I'm the Rabbi's husband. You are the God of the if you Thank you for tuning in. I'm the Rabbi's husband, Mark Gerson, and here, as ever, to Unearth. The inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted to be joined today by Senator Cory Booker, a Stanford All American tight end, Rhodes Scholar, and Yale Law School graduate. Senator Booker is a two term mayor of Newark, New Jersey, where he led the revival of New Jersey's largest city. He is now in his second term in the United States Senate. Cory, who is a Christian, has spent an adult lifetime studying and drawing inspiration from Jewish texts. I know this firsthand as in the course of my 25 year friendship with Corey has among other things, we've enjoyed dozens of Shabbat dinners. He brought me to the Rebbe's grave in Crown Heights several times. He crashed my Jewish wedding. We were otherwise planning on eloping. He has attended seders at our home for 20 consecutive years and was the sandik at our eldest son's
1: bris. So Corey, welcome to the rabbi's husband. I I love it. Uh, I have to say, uh, I feel like the rabbi who gets uh, a little short shrift has she made an appearance, a guest appearance on the podcast at all? No, maybe she should be the 100th guest or well you would know Corey, what's a significant Jewish number where she could be that guest? I mean, you've already way past high. <laughs> way past high, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So maybe 5
0: times high? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, no, that's a good idea because 5 times high, the great Jewish number of completion is 7. Yes. Well, 7 days in the week, it's all kinds of 7. Yes. Yeah. 70 people go from Egypt down to the promised land. So she should be the
1: 70th guest. That is, that's, that's actually really great. I will say that eight has a more significant number. So seven is earthly. There's a rule in the Taurus, a stream has to run, a river has to run for seven years to even be considered a river. Interesting. But eight is considered a a more universal, more ethereal, more spiritual of of a number. Because I think it's, it's seven, it's this world meeting the next world, seven plus
0: one. Right gets to this world being the next world. So Corey, of all that you've studied in Judaism, of all that you've lived in Judaism, explain to us why you chose Genesis 18, 1 through 10 as the passage to discuss both what it means to you and actually
1: what happens in the passage. Well, it is one of the stories, seminal stories. First of all, it's hard to choose for me. And I think one of the reasons why I've taken such delight in doing many years of what the Torah portion for each week is that there are so many rich stories that I've drawn. I've drawn on in my public speeches already. We just talked about one before we got on this podcast. My whole presidential campaign, one of the seminal stories I would tell would be about the Torah portion written where King was killed. And, you know, behold, here cometh the dreamer, let us slay him and, and see what becomes of his dream. This idea of rising from the pit, leading a nation through crisis is what Joseph was able to do. So there's lots of stories like that that have so formed and shaped a lot of my speeches and a lot of my inspiration. But there's something about this story because it, it, it involves sort of two of the great legs of, I think, two of the great values of humanity. One is chesed, kindness, and the other is Tzedakah, which a lot of people think is charity, but it's really justice. Right. And it is a story that encompasses those two legs, pillars to humanity, all evidenced in the man who was going to be the father of many nations. And it starts with Abraham sitting in pain, having just circumcised himself. And I love doing this to you know, Jewish student groups when they come down and see me in the Senate and asking them, you know, when did he receive the blessing? And many people say, well, it was after the circumcision. I go, no, a lot happened between the circumcision and the blessing. And so he's sitting in pain and Abraham sees strangers in the desert. And I remember one rabbi, when I was talking to Jewish students about this portion, was telling me that the Torah specifically talks about them being different, that some of the commentary says that they were different, like different race even than him. But it says that he gets up, and the Torah doesn't say he welcomes him. It says he ran to them. Exactly. Ran to them to welcome that enthusiasm of seeing strangers. And, and even before that, it says God approached him, and
0: then he looks up, sees him, and runs to him. So he interrupts his presumed conversation
1: with God to run to the stranger. Yes, which is so powerful. And then the, he just welcomes them into his tent. And I love these ideals in Judaism, welcome the stranger because you were once a stranger in a strange land. In fact, I tell people one of my favorite moments as an American was the night in January of, of the first incarnation of the Muslim man, which was just so obviously written in a way. It was ultimately challenging court one and was changed a few times before they found something that was, could pass judicial muster. But I go out to Dulles Airport. Matt Clapper, our mutual friend, was out there and said, you've got to get out here. So I rush out to Dulles Airport to help. I had a court order to let Customs Border Patrol know that they had to give people access to a counsel, to lawyers that were being detained. But I get there, and I'm blown away. The concourse is full of Americans cheering when Muslim families would come out. And what I saw, being someone who spent a lot of time with Orthodox Jews, is— I saw this group of Orthodox Jews, kippahs, beards, sitzas, dancing as if they were at a Jewish wedding, Hmm. celebrating and welcoming Muslim families from other countries coming into America. And I got such chills watching these men dance and sing and celebrate the welcoming of strangers coming into America from a different faith and race. It was amazing to me. Beautiful. So this to me is a, is this fundamental first pillar is that chesed, that kindness, that decency and how we should act towards the other, which for those of us who've been different, Jewish, black, you're often the other in, in, this, in, in our own country and seeing that kind of grace and that kind of decency. Just getting
0: back to what you were saying about, because I think you, you noticed something profound in the passage about when you mentioned that Abraham ran to the strangers, they weren't going anywhere. Right. So he runs, and then as the passage proceeds, he tells him, I'll fetch you a morsel of bread. Turns out he and Sarah and their lad were making a feast, but he calls it a morsel of bread. And then the word haste appears five times in the passage in the consideration of how quickly they made the food and how quickly they delivered it to him.
1: Leading to the great Jewish teaching deriving from this, that the deeds of the righteous are done in haste. But first, just can you go back and highlight that idea of humility. You know, this morsel, they did lord his wealth over them. You know, when I was mayor, one of our sort of guiding principles was to under-promise, over-deliver. That's a great leadership principle of the Bible. I hadn't thought of that. That's exactly what he does. Yes. he bring you a morsel. He brings him a feast. Right. Right. Really powerful. And then I love that you picked up on this idea that you are you are hustling. You're moving quickly to doing righteous action. And I really believe that, you know, Mommodides, what is it, eight levels of giving, This idea of giving when you are not asked is a higher level. And and let let me give you an example of of this. So it was
0: 33 days before the Iowa caucus, okay? And I got a call from you. It was right towards the end of the the calendar year. And you said to me, I know how deeply involved you are supporting uh, Christian missionary doctors working in Africa. I want to make a donation to serve that cause. And this was you. Nobody asked you. I never would have thought to even think that you were thinking about, talk about the stranger, about the, the, the stranger, the, the poor in Africa who are so tragically and unforgivably ignored, but that's who you were thinking about 33 days before Iowa. So talk about giving without being asked. That to me epitomized it. And nobody even knows it. No one knows it. You know, people think politicians do things for the press or whatever. No one until
1: now knows that you did that. I guess it'll be in your financial disclosure forms, but, but no one knows you did it. Right. I often think that what we see or say about other people is more a reflection of who we are than who they are. And so whether you're saying negative or positive things, it's a reflection of who you are. And right. I know so much about your deep chesed, and, and I know what you do. I, know, I shouldn't even say that. I know a, a, a touch of what you do and how you do it. And your work in Africa, you're calling me, this is years ago as a black man, I think I was at your house actually, when you were telling me about the shortage of doctors and you, a, a devout Jew, was supporting Christian missionaries, a Christian organization. I was so flattened by that. It, it, it affected me in a way that, that Thank you. it's never lost. But also the fact that I just didn't know. I didn't know of the level of need, how few doctors, I think you know the data pretty much better than I do, but a few doctors per people in large areas of, of the continent. Of Africa. Yeah,
0: very often it's one doctor for every uh, 30 to 40,000 people. Yeah. That's a problem that Christian missionary doctors alleviate. And that's a problem that you helped alleviate when you called me 33 days before Iowa to ask how you could give. I mean, this is what you were thinking about 33 days before Iowa. You were thinking about the stranger, the poor, how you could help and how you did help. And no one knew about it. Let's talk about another example that you did. So, Abraham, as we've talked about, ran to the guests and then he and his wife and their lad were in haste five times. You were in a similar circumstance when you in Newark saw. A house burning, literally burning, next to you, and you literally ran. You literally ran. I mean, there was no time to do. You, there was there was no time to think to consider. You had to act or not act. You couldn't walk. You either had to stand and watch or run, and you ran into a burning house.
1: Yeah, the I mean, family was coming out, and the mother kept yelling that her that her daughter was still in the home and ascended to the top of the stairs. As sort of this some kind of electricity exploded before us, and my security guard and I began to have a bit of a fight. He did not want you to go and you wanted to go. Yeah. And the Stanford tight end and you came back out and you rushed into the house. I was, he and I were at the top of the stairs. Both of us were in the house. So he had bravery as well. But when the thing exploded, that's when he said this, we can't get this person out because so the fire had engulfed the kitchen, was rolling across, uh, I'll never forget. It looks like liquid rolling across the ceiling of the kitchen. The kitchen was being engulfed. So then he grabs me by the belt to try to drag me out. And I just make the, I just instinctively as most people would just said, if we don't try, they're going to die. And and at that point, I darted through the kitchen. But I still remember that was a powerful personal moment for me, more because it was the first time in my life I felt myself just agree that I was going to die. Like It was like when I got in there, she was non-responsive. It was pitch black with smoke. I remember as a kid in school, you drop to the floor, and I just couldn't breathe there either. It felt like I was breathing in hot ash. Looked back to the kitchen, and now it seemed impassable. And I was screaming for the person to respond. Then I started trying to find my own way out of another exit. I, we were on the second floor. I was just trying to find a window, and I couldn't. I was tripping over things, pounding on things. And it was just that I felt myself sort of realize that I, this was probably it. I heard her say something, and then it was all God. I just really think that at that point, I shut, I shut down. You heard her say something telling you where she was because you didn't know until then. It was like her voice was like a voice of an angel, honestly. I, I almost, and I said this to her that I felt like she saved me because at that point I was, I was about to give up and I breathed in too much smoke and was just feeling sick. And she said something. So then I darted towards the voice, found her body, found her, grabbed her in my arms. And then I realized there was no way out, but through that kitchen. And then she, again, like an angel, I, I kind of felt like she saved and protected me because the way I was holding her, remember I said the ceiling was it. So there was hot stuff melting off of the ceiling, and the fire was there, so she actually protected me. She got really bad burns on her I, My hand burned from where I, where I was holding her it was sort of the part of me that was really exposed. I don't think that that was conscious in the way that Abraham was doing it. I think that that was all instinct, all things beyond my power that got me out of there alive and the staff well I, I, it may or may not have been conscious, but one of the things, so no one
0: tells Abraham to do what he did. No one tells Abraham, hey, why don't you just interrupt God and go to the stranger? But he had internalized what it meant to live the Torah as the Torah was being, before it was revealed. He'd internalized it. It become part of who he was. So he just acted just like you did. When, when, when it becomes a part
1: of you, no one has to tell you because it's you and you just go act accordingly. I mean, look, Abraham was a, I mean, one of the reasons why he's such an extraordinary figure to me is we've already seen. God call out to Adam, right? Where are you? And he was hiding. He calls out to Moses and and Moses doesn't want any part of what Gods. that's right. but Abraham, when God calls him, he says, "He name me, behold God, here I am. He he he's sort of this figure that stands up and assumes responsibility, and so he's sort of singular in that way. and I think a lot of us are are racked with like Moses was with. Insecurities as Moses was, felt like he couldn't talk. But here's this guy that to me was so powerful in his willingness to do right. And what is interesting here, and I know we haven't gotten to this point, I remember falling in love with the Torah because it brought things out to me that I hadn't really thought about. And I, this was back when I was in Oxford, when I realized this irrational willingness, as you said, remember, he leaves God. He's God and him are about to have a conversation and he runs away from God to do good. To do justice. And I, I realized, I started putting it together that there are numerous points in the, in the Torah where this idea of not obeying God's will is actually celebrated. Remember when Moses comes down and sees his people worshiping a golden calf, God says, I'm okay, let me destroy these people, give you some more people to, relieve, to lead. And I think the Hebrew is, na if you destroy these people, then erase me from your book. I mean, how radical is that, that you're telling a deity, you're telling God that I want no part of you if you do this. And, and so this idea of defiance as a celebrated virtue, and I know we're jumping ahead, so we can jump ahead and then rewind, but I said that one thing, Chesed, when I, I think the best example of tzedakah is when the angels have now revealed themselves, they have blessed Abraham, now they say to Abraham, they tell him what they're going to go do. They're going to go, and for me as a mayor, it's kind of scary. And they say they're going to go destroy a city. You know, they're, they're off to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and what I would do, if messengers from God were telling me what they'd do, I'd be like, yes, Lord, or whatever. But no, he starts fighting, arguing with angels to not destroy, to show mercy and not destroy a city. And to me, that's where he goes from showing chesed, kindness, this humility, under promise over deliver hastily doing goodness and decency, and that was the last act he did before he was blessed and then the first act he really does after a blessing is to now fight for justice to negotiate for the on, on behalf of the people of the cities and so my point is is like those to me are the two legs of humanity when we are at our best one leg kindness decency, charity the other leg justice, a just world no matter if it's a so-called act of God, or hurricane, or tsunami, or what have you. It's this ideal of, I'm going to stand up for what is just, no matter if it's a will of God or
0: not. Well, I think it's a, it's a beautiful point, particularly about how the, the, the Jewish insistence on arguing with God, on everybody, yes. including God, living under principles. And it's in the Jewish Torah, and the Jewish imagination, it's perfectly acceptable, indeed required, to call everyone to account for not living up to their principles, even God. And if you can do it with God, you can sure do it with anybody. But the interesting thing about this parsha that you chose, or the, this aspect of the partial that you chose, is that God seems to love it. So when Abraham bolts from his communication with God to serve the stranger, God seems to love it. He seems to say, he seems to think, that's exactly what I want. And I think we get that sense. So these, as you said, these, uh, these men are really angels, because in Hebrew, the word for angel messenger is the same word, the same concept. An angel, someone delivers a message. So in the beginning, it says that Abraham lifts his eyes to the angels. They're above him. After he serves them, he's above them. So they're above him, then he's above them. But by serving them, by treating the stranger as he does, he's elevated above the angels. Mm. This is God's imagination that when you serve people, you become greater than the angels. And then God gives him the great blessing about that he'll have children immediately thereafter, as if to say, This is what I want in a person. Yes. You mentioned meeting an angel before when you were in the burning building and this woman cried out to you and you felt God and it was the voice of an angel because. You thought you were going to die, and but for her voice, the odds are you would have. Yeah. So it struck me that's so appropriate given the context of this passage because this is the passage that teaches us that people and angels are indistinguishable, and it teaches us that there are angels all over, everywhere. And the angel is not somebody with uh, white wings or something that that's up in heaven, but the angels are literally all over. The angel could be the person who taps you on the shoulder and says, uh, "Don't cross the street right now," then the car goes by, or it could be the per- the teacher who says to you. I think you'd be a great scientist. It could, it's just the person who just delivers a message from God and then immediately goes back to being a person. Yes. And all we have to do is open ourselves up to these people because God puts them everywhere. So where else in your life? So that's a perfect example. That's the, this angel actually saved your life. Where else have you seen angels? Have you, have you, have, can you think of other instances where an angel in exactly the sense of this passage has tapped you on the shoulder the angel of course, being a person and has sent you
1: in a direction. You know my career. there's been lots of moments where I I have this whole definition of faith that when you come to the end of all the light you know and you're about to step into the darkness, faith is knowing one of two things that's going to happen either you're gonna find solid ground underneath you or the world will teach you people angels, send you people to teach you how to fly and and give you lift to your dreams. And so you know I took an unconventional pathway out of law school and jumped into it, but you, my friend, were angelic to me in the very beginning of my career by, you know, you're the one that told me that I should go see our classmate at Nickel that ended up being a family that has been one of the more influential families in my life because he helped basically run my first campaign and give me belief that we could do it. So I I have had this blessing of every step of my career and you were really a major player in, in my ascendancy in Newark by in continuing to bring people into my life that gave my life lift and my path of service. So I, I, I really do see, I see God using all of us or using each other to help guide us along. And, and I feel very blessed, frankly, from, from that. You know, in Newark, I had lots of, lots and lots of, of and I wrote a lot, a lot of them in my book, a lot of people who just came into my life in pretty significant ways that sort of guided me along. Like Frank Hutchins was a, a beautiful man who I wrote about in my, in my book, who from his life to his, even the last words he said to me were so shaping to me. He was, one of, he was part of a collection of uh, him and Ms. Jones, another tenant leader who pushed me to run for city council and made me believe I could do it. And then people started coming to help like yourself. Frank's last words to me on his deathbed were he had gone blind and I walked in and announced myself and he says, I see you was a one for one sentence he can get out. Like I said, hey Frank, it's Corey. It's like I see you. And then the last thing I said to him was a goodbye and I love you. And then he forced out the words, I love you. And I was just think about those words. I see you, I love you, I see you, I love you. And that's when you talk about how the suffering of so many people are invisible to us, whether it's the communities you help serve in Africa where when we see each other, number one, we acknowledge it. You see the stranger in the distance to actually see them and then love them, uh, which is to serve them and to be there for them. And so in many ways, Frank's Frank's very life and the way he lived, and he led the longest rent strike in Newark history after the abysmal conditions of the Newark Housing Authority and spent his whole life in service of others, that, that value in acknowledging everyone. And I see the way you and your life, Mark, treat people who others might relegate to us to a lower quote unquote station in life but the, the ability to truly see the character and the and the grace and the divinity in everyone and then to be active and, and love is an action verb and not a passive one uh, love involves sacrifice you can't you can't love your kids without us it's a struggle it, it is a service it is sacrifice it's hard and so those 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 ideals I've had incredible teachers that have appeared in my life that have helped me to try to be a better servant of God's will. What I believe is God's will. And, and I, I, constantly, even when I get too big for my own britches, I feel like I get messengers that come in or uh, that, that help me sort of get my act together and, and, and get right. And, and
0: you open yourself up to them. I mean, one of the, one of the things which you've always done so well is look for those messengers and take criticism so well and almost seek it and want it. And, uh, What a way to live if we actually looked at everybody around us, like Abraham did as if we looked at everybody as a potential messenger of God, like who's that person? She very well could be a messenger of God. That's who it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how much, how how different our daily lives would be and how much different our world would be. And I think what Abraham's teaching us here is, and you live it is that's not a fantasy. That's the real world. Everybody can be a messenger from God and God sends messengers to do all kinds of things all the
1: time. We just have to pay attention. I like what you said about accepting criticism. Like, I remember a moment where, and I told this actually at Matt Clapper's university when I gave the commencement speech, because it was one of those moments where God was just like, look, you can preach this stuff, but you're not living it. And it happened to be a time. Now you're not going to forgive me for this. But I, you know, I, I, I am often driven by a great guy named Kevin Batts. Who's been, a uh, uh, in my life for a long time. And I was being, I was coming home from a long day's work and we were three blocks from where I'm sitting now in Newark, there's a McDonald's, <laughs> um, So it's not kosher in many ways. It's not kosher on many levels. I should not be going into a McDonald's, but as I'm driving past it, I, the flesh is weak and he looks at me in the rearview mirror and I just put my head down. And next thing you know, we're turning in, I'm a a plant-based guy. So all I want is to get like two large French fries. We go through the drive-through. I get my large French fries. You know, we may disagree on this policy issue, but I think we should deschedule marijuana. I don't think it should be a, uh, a scheduled drug, but I think maybe McDonald's French fries should be scheduled because they're very addictive. <laughs> um, so I'm holding my McDonald's French fries, and we're about to drive out, and I see a, a guy in a dumpster at the end of the drive out, uh, drive through, and so I know what I have to do. It's just like it's it's part of my spiritual groundings. I even think uh, it's just uh, you know it's the right thing to do to your neighbor. So I rolled out my window, I call out to him. He sort of tries to brush me off, and I realize I don't want to assault his dignity. So I asked it in a lighthearted way where, where I wouldn't, I didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable in any way. You know, I I said, Hey man, you need anything? And he was like, I'm hungry. And so I pulled out my McDonald's French fries and I handed to him and I think the interaction's over, I've given him half of my bounty (laughs) and, uh, he seemed very happy to be getting these hot fries. And then he says to me, do I have any socks? Now, you've worked with homeless people. I've worked with homeless people. It's like, this is something that's probably worth his weight in gold. He probably had something going on with his feet. And I look mainly around my car. I don't carry extra socks. And I'm like, sorry, sir, I don't have any socks. And then I look forward in my car, thinking that Kevin's going to drive away. But Kevin doesn't drive away. Hmm. Uh, He puts the car in park, reaches between his legs, takes off the shoes he's wearing, pulls off the socks he's wearing, and hands them to the guy who's thrilled that he has socks. Now, I'm three blocks from my home. I have socks upstairs that I haven't opened yet from, I think my mom gave me, you know, some Christmas long ago, but I didn't think in that moment to do like Abraham did, his example. And it was such a great lesson. It was like a lightning bolt to me. Well, I
0: think that man was an angel, right? Because you're thinking about it and talking about it now because that man educated you.
1: Yes, he really did. As did Kevin. What a gift. He's an, an angel. Offered. Yeah. I really, it was sent me a message that here I am, this high and mighty United States senator who gives really nice sounding speeches about love and grace and kindness. But in, the, in a simple interaction, I didn't have the moral imagination to let my values so penetrate me. And every day I try not to miss that opportunity to show up, to be present, to see someone and to love someone in the way that I feel is my core values as a human. And so it was, you're right, it was a wonderful lesson to me, given to me by a man outside of a McDonald's and a man in my car, Both of them might have been angels.
0: In fact, they probably both were. Yeah. So moving from one text to another, this is always the final question. So we've had what a magnificent discussion about the Torah. So now moving to Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says, uh, he just ran into this guy, he says, and he said, this man had, um, I served with him in the war. He said he had saved a lot of Jews and then he became a parish priest. And I said to the man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, tell me two things that you've learned about mankind. So the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems, and two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Corey, in all of your years in, in public service, and perhaps even focusing on the presidential
1: campaign or otherwise, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Wow. So the first thing I learned is we're all mountain ranges. We all have peaks and valleys. Hmm. And sometimes all we focus on are the person's peaks, and we don't realize they have valleys, and all we focus on is the person's valleys, and we don't see their peaks. And so it's just to understand the people we think are horrible people, you know, the truth is we've been horrible. And I think just accepting that it, it, for me, it, it helps me to rise to what I think my challenge was just to love the other, love my neighbor. And is
0: that also the case with people who are celebrated? Like when you see someone who's celebrated, maybe he's
1: really broken and is deep in a valley. Yeah, I, I really, I really, I really think that you know, it's just simple. Like somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're like, that's a blank hole, you know? And the reality is, no, they're just another human being on a journey like you are. And you probably unknowingly or knowingly cut somebody off yourself. Like, why are you so quick to judge? And when you're not called to judge, you're called to love, I think, others. So one thing is just to remind myself always that we all have peaks and valleys. and then i trying to think, I wish you had given me this question beforehand. I would have something so much more profound. I should have. I'm sorry, yes. No, no, you know, I'm joking. The other thing about humanity is to recognize, for me, and I think there's real truth in this, is that we all were created in the image of God. And I think that we all have that divinity about us. And I think that that's true. And I really try to think about that no matter what. And, you know, John Lewis just passed away. And one of the stories I loved that he told me was about when the man, one of the men who beat him, I think on the MS Pettus Bridge, but, but viciously beat him, years later would come to his office as a congressperson to apologize. I think he had a son or grandson with him. And, you know, John Lewis forgave him. And we, you know, we talked a lot about these ideals of a pathway to redemption because we've all done wretched things in our lives and we all want to be redeemed. But I think that we all owe it to for those of us who seek redemption to, to offer others that same pathway and possibility. And that doesn't mean you allow people to mistreat you or allow them to continue injustice, but you understand that they're a soul that is struggling and evolving and working through things as well. And that, that everybody is worthy of 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 love and and grace, frankly. You spent
0: um some months uh, last year really seeing America in a way that almost nobody does or has. What did you learn about America or Americans that
1: Almost everybody else wouldn't know. Oh, wouldn't know. I mean, my first reaction to that question was just like how alike we all are, so much more so than we than we think. And I don't care what your political persuasion is or race, ethnicity, we're all far more alike. And there is American, there is Americanness, there are American values and virtues, and we're all better. You know, my whole campaign became that theme that the lines that divide us are not nearly as strong as the ties that bind us. And we need to find ways to reaffirm that sense of common purpose and common cause commonality. But what did I learn about people that that others, that others might not know? Right. I mean, look, I discovered a lot, like I made alliances with Republican farmers, you know, like, I, I didn't know that as I, I knew it, but I knew it intellectually. I didn't know it viscerally. And now I feel like I viscerally know that, that. I still remember going out to meet with a Republican farmer. This was a a little bit before I ran. In in Iowa? It it was, no, it was in Western Illinois. Okay. And he invited me to his home to meet with his other farmers. I got out of the car. He seemed very stiff. He asked me if I wanted to see his cows and cattle and stuff first. So I went down and saw his cattle and he just was so stiff. I tried to, I used every bad, bad joke I have, you know, I was like, God, your cows are utterly amazing, sir. You know, I said, if you don't smile for me, I'm going to milk this joke for everything I can. <laughs> and he wasn't smiling. He got, He started smiling and, and loosening up and we got in. And then I realized that we were, we agreed on so much as we sat at the table with his other farmers that, that a lot of uh, corporate consolidation, they used to have like five people. You know, these are original entrepreneurs. They used to have five people to sell their, cattle too. Now it's like they only have one company that if they complain, will cut them off. Their share of the consumer dollars is going down like 50% in just a matter of years as the sort of monopolistic practices that are really hurting them. They're driving them off their land. And these mega farms are coming up that are not as good stewards of the land as they are. And so we just had a really thoughtful conversation about the free market and and a lot of principles that I believe in and that they believe in. But by the end, we're Having a great conversation by the end, he's asking me for selfies with his family and all this. And I get back in the car, and the guy who was my sherpa, showing me kind of around, was just like, "I didn't want to tell you this before we went here, but that man didn't want you in his house." And I was like, "Really?" And he and he goes, "Yeah." He whatever lens he sees his news from, and you know, there were people that demonized me, and you know, this. They're both sides will often try to demonize the other the other side of this political divide in our country, and. He goes, yeah. And then he brought religion into it. He's like, we're a Christian family. We can't have someone like that in our home. And my friend was like, well, Corey's a Christian. And what, you know, what is it about him? And he said that, you know, I, i lost my temper in a hearing on this uh, it's a longer story, but he just said, oh, he's so angry. And I guess that's why he was kind of surprised I'm making jokes and was so lighthearted. But anyway, it just was this example to me that we can get so set in our ways and say all oh, those liberals or all oh, those right-wing wackos or whatever you want to say that we, we begin to stop seeing each other as humans and see each other as the other. And we begin to lose sight of the commonality and common cause and lose our ability to even love each other uh, because we've so demonized each other. And so for me, going into circumstances where this Northeastern urban mayor To find that if, you know, there's a writer, Brene Brown, who says it's hard to hate up close, so pull people in. And it's hard to hate somebody that you sit down and have lunch with. And that's, I find that in the Senate. One of my favorite things I got done with a guy named Inhofe was I I started going to Bible study in his office. And I remember seeing him, and again, my implicit biases, we all have them, was that I wouldn't see this right-wing conservative senator with a picture of him and a little black girl. And I asked him about the picture. I was surprised to see it. Again, my implicit bias. And it turns out that that he adopted that little girl from Africa, right? I was moved by it and put the story in my head. And then when we were dealing with this big education bill, Lamar Alexander was managing and not letting any amendments on. But my staff wanted me to get an amendment to force states, not to tell them what to do, but just to disaggregate the data so you can see how homeless and foster kids were doing. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And it was a common sense agenda to help foster kids, help homeless kids. And I realized that his empathy and compassion towards this girl he adopted in Africa, and I went to him and talked to him about it. And next thing you know, he's co-sponsoring an amendment. And now I have a chairman of a big committee on it. And it ends up being something that I get on the bill, and it's the law of the land now. And that would not have happened if I didn't get proximate. You know, there's a great religious Catholic leader that once said, go out, amongst the people and be with them until you smell like your flock. In other words, get so close to the people you're trying to serve that you actually smell like them, you know, and this need to be proximate, I think often because to, to love someone is to know them. Like I, I, you are my friend. I know you on a lot of levels, but the fact that I also know that you're a man of faith and I know your faith, it makes it a lot easier. I have a deeper knowledge of you and, and it deepens my love. So I just think we know so little of each other often. And then we on top of that divide ourselves by this demonization we often do. And so here, if I went to the Senate and was just like, you know, those Republicans are this, this, and this, as opposed to let me see your humanity, let me get close to you, let me sit with you in your office, that yields so much benefit for me to 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 try to always be an active to love my colleagues, even if I disagree, even if we get into fights, which we do, but to always return to that that center. And it makes it makes for fertile ground to plant seeds that can create a harvest for our country. And it's it's it. Well, I remember
0: being at a, a fundraiser for you and and someone in the audience said, uh, well, these terrible Republicans, and you just said in front of a very democratic audience, of people who were potential contributors, you said, you yeah, know, stop it. Like these, these Republicans you're talking about, like, they're my friends, they're my colleagues, we work together, we accomplish things with each other. Like, they're, they're not bad. They're not what you say. And to be able to,
1: to, in the context of a fundraiser, to say that, that's something I've not seen before. Look, and I feel you and I both know about this uh, from a lot of things. I mean, the people who stand by and say nothing. Like I, I was on a fundraiser during this pandemic for uh, somebody I'm trying to help beat one of my colleagues. And somebody said this awful comment about the person he was running against. And I just stopped and wanted to see if anybody was going to say anything. Nobody said anything. So when it came to my time to speak, I said, time out. I, and I had to call that out. You, you can't be silent. I feel complicit when I witness things and I don't speak up about them. I mean, I'm sitting a few hundred yards from the synagogue, used to be a synagogue, now it's a black church, of Rabbi Yocham Prince, who was the, one of the five speakers at the March on Washington. And he got exiled by the Nazis. Before they were killing Jews, they were exiling them. Came to the United States, was raising money around the country for to fight the Nazis and, and for the Jewish cause and saw the condition of blacks and knew he couldn't be silent. And so he became an outspoken civil rights activist. And so I am here because people who witnessed injustices, they didn't pray like Goodman, Cheney, Schwarner, Jewish, black, Christian, white, they, they died together. So for me on the, I, I and you know, this is a faith, the principle of Jewish faith, principle of my faith as well. I just try to challenge myself because there have been many times in my past where people were making a sexist remark or something in my younger years where I didn't say something and it haunts me to this day. And so I try to do my best by calling people out when they're making these kind of ridiculous comments, as I hope people will call people out when they hear people trying to castigate Democrats using these broad-based things. And I catch myself. My staff, by the way, knowing my principles, catches me when I say the Republicans because, you know, I just did an interview for News 12 here in New Jersey, and I was very careful to say, no, wait, Democrats and Republicans across this country and the Democratic Governors Association, bipartisan. No, I'm just having issues with Mitch McConnell right now. Uh, so,
0: well, I think it shows, as we talked about with you in the Bernie building, how deeply you've internalized, you've internalized so many of these values of the Torah. So injustice to you is not just some grand horror. You know, you defined injustice in this instance you just talked about. You're out of, you're out of in a partisan environment, the most partisan environment there is, a fundraiser. Someone says something wrong about a colleague of yours. You stop them. Yeah. So it's it, it's injustice whether it's that or to, God forbid, a
1: cosmic level. It's it's just part of who you are. You stop it. Right. And you and and you, and, it, and I'm in struggle. We're all in struggle. I'm trying to live up to my values every day, and I fall short every day. But I think it's that wrestling always with that is what's important to me. And and again, to wrap this up, I, I have been sourced with everybody from. Soloveitchek to Viktor Frankl, so many great Jewish thinkers and obviously Talmud Torah that, that is all about this struggle. How, what is the good life and how do you live it and how do you be a better person? And I just feel blessed that you came into my life to challenge me and to help me and to model for me that struggle, to help me possibly not screw up, finding, making things work with my besherahs, which I think is, she's moving in next week and I know you're really happy about that. That's great. Well, I, uh, well, I'm sure you, I'm, I, I wish you every blessing romantically, politically,
0: and, uh, and thank you for, uh, for being on the rabbi's husband and for 25 years now of, uh, it's 25 years we met in the fall of 95. So it's, uh, it's almost our tw- next month. will be our 25th anniversary of friendship.
1: Well, Hashem, we can, we can celebrate in person sometime soon for a quarter century of you being stuck with me. <laughs> it's It's been a blessing in every respect. And, uh, God willing, we'll get together in person soon
0: and uh, we'll have another talk together.
1: Amen. 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 Thank you, my brother.